Welcome to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brandon Bachelor, and Randy Janda. Thanks for joining us. We're back again this week following a disappointing road trip for the Vancouver Canucks. We'll get into lots of the talking points coming off that. Uh, but Randeep, when we spoke last week, I was on Baby Watch. Mere hours after we recorded last week's show, my wife and I welcomed our son Rory into the world. So I missed a couple of the games on the trip. So apologies if that is any contributing factor as to why the Canucks ended up going over away from home. But glad to be back. Everybody's doing well and glad to get back to In the Booth with you this week. When in doubt, Blame Dan Richo. Uh, <laughs> he did a great job filling in for you, but uh, congratulations. You're right. It was uh, a birthday for you. And then Rory was born. So what a uh, the next day, right? The next morning. Like two hours after midnight. So uh, he, he got his own birthday just barely. And uh, maybe Rory's the bad luck charm rather than Dan Riccio. Canucks 0-4 in his lifetime now. So Hey, I, I ha- always say this. When I started color commentary last year, I went 05 and 2. So it turns around eventually. Eventually. Yes, we were all talking about the Janda Jinx. I can remember it. It was, so. it was trending for a couple of days, but we're, we've moved past that. We certainly have. Uh, the Canucks, meanwhile, are struggling right now. They have lost four games in a row for the first time this year. They fall 5-2 to two in Seattle on Thursday and now return home for a Saturday afternoon matchup against the Boston Bruins, 4 o'clock face-off pregame at 3 right here on Sportsnet 650 and along the network and streaming on the Sportsnet app, so make sure to join us for that. We've got a ton of listener questions coming in. There's a lot of frustration with this team with the way that they've played this week, so we're going to get to a lot of those questions coming up later in the show, but looking back at the game on Thursday night, Randy, one of the most disappointing performances from the Canucks this season, I would say. And there have only been a handful, right? It's a very short list. You look back at the 4 nothing loss to Boston. You look back at the loss in Philly right at the start of the season. Those are really the only two really disappointing games that jump to mind. I guess the Minnesota one and the collapse in the third period on this trip uh, is another one too. But Canucks didn't have a lot of pushback, weren't winning a lot of puck battles, uh, didn't create enough didn't transition the puck well enough, got caught running around in their own zone a lot. They fall 5-2 to two to their division rivals in Washington State, and Rick Tockett kind of called them out after the game. That's right, he did, and he really came down to guys not working, guys not really putting in the effort, and it started mostly in the second period where Seattle started to really refine their game. They started to, to push the Canucks and started playing with speed, but they made life difficult for the Vancouver Canucks and the Canucks couldn't match that they're winning puck battles left right and center and this is the thing where if you're not sticking to your structure and you might be playing tired but what is one of the things that Rick Tockett has said this year you got to bring the effort and when you get tired rely on what you've been doing all season long stick to those uh, staples stick to the principles that you've been thriving with all year long and and Batch really against Seattle didn't see that as a team that looked Maybe tired, but they were also outworked. And that's one of the things I'm sure the coach is not happy about as he did have some very direct comments to his team saying they're not some guys, a lot of guys did not show up. And that's something that anytime a coach says that, uh, that's a very pointed criticism of his team. Now, not to make excuses, but there are some factors here that we do have to pay attention to. Canucks have had an incredibly busy and travel-intensive schedule since the all-star break the game on Thursday night their 10th game 
in 17 nights. It was the end of a four-in-six stretch that saw them start at home against Winnipeg, fly to Minnesota, play back-to-back at Elevation in Colorado, and then play a rested Seattle Kraken team at the end of this stretch. And it doesn't get a whole lot easier. They've got three games at home coming up. Boston, as I mentioned, Saturday. Pittsburgh, Tuesday. The Kings on Thursday. And then they're back out on the road for three games, albeit a California trip with Vegas on the end of it. All of this to say, this is probably the toughest stretch of their schedule this season. And they're going to be rewarded in March because they've got nine consecutive games at home and they're very well spaced out. But all of that said, you still have to find a way to get points and get wins and get results and have good performances when you are a tired team, when you have had a tough schedule. We've seen the Canucks earlier this season come up with wins in games where they were the betting underdog or it's a scheduled loss, a second half of a back-to-back on the road. The game against the New York Islanders is one that jumps to mind. So this is a team that for the most part this season has been able to find a way to get wins regardless of the situation but it hasn't been the case of late and and you have to wonder about how tired they are. You have to worry about or wonder about how much they're missing. Some of the guys that are hurt right now, Dakota Joshua and Carson Soucy at the top of that list. And you do have to wonder what sort of a performance they'll be able to put forth on Saturday against the Bruins, because let's be perfectly honest. If it even closely resembles the way they played against Seattle on Thursday, they're going to be in for a tough long night on home ice. And that will be a motivated Boston team as well that ended up losing to Calgary, but we saw the power that they have. You know, the 4 nothing win against Vancouver in Boston, the 6-5 game that they ended up beating Edmonton as well. So they've got it. They're one of the best teams. They're currently the best team in the NHL, and they're capable of embarrassing you. But here's the thing with the Vancouver Canucks. You're right. It's been a lot of games, and fatigue is a factor. But this is something that the coaches mentioned in the past batch where you got to learn how to play tired and it's a very difficult stretch right now and you have to make sure that you're not getting out of position you're not you know compounding mistakes and I think that's where the Seattle game was a little bit worrying because you saw some of those habits maybe that we haven't seen from this team this year Um, other than that maybe that Philadelphia game or a couple other games where they were going out of position there's two defensemen on the same side you know vacating one side of the net and leaving players all by themselves so it was certain things like that and you make those mistakes when you are tired but another factor also is lack of practice time right this is a team that hasn't had that opportunity because they've been on the road there's been a lot of travel days you come to Vancouver you're gonna have some practice time can you refine some of your game a get some rest and b work on some of the things that you didn't do so well transitioning the puck out of their own zone was a challenge the other thing power play uh, the power play is something that you know requires some practice, requires some confidence, and it requires some serious attention here because they continue to struggle. So that practice time should help. One for their last 28 on the power play after going 0 for 4 in Seattle on Thursday night. And for the first time, we saw Rick Tockett and his staff go to personnel changes on PP1. Philip Heronik was elevated to the first power play unit uh, at the expense of Brock Besser and Elias Lindholm. I believe both of them took shifts on PP2 throughout the game on Thursday. And uh, let's be honest, it didn't really help that much. I, I didn't feel like the Canucks generated a ton of chances. I didn't feel like they had that spark. And now we're getting to the point where it's not just the power play, but it's an even strength to 
that their top players are not getting the job done. And when you're missing a depth guy that has helped drive play like Dakota Joshua, that looms a lot larger because let's be perfectly honest, there have been stretches this season where the Canucks top players have gone quiet. But that third line has been a game changer in terms of generating offense and and driving play when the top lines aren't producing offense. And then it allows the top lines better opportunities to create because the third line drives play. Hems a team in the other end of the ice, gets a change, top players come out, or draws a penalty, top players get to come out on the power play and capitalize. Well, the top players aren't capitalizing on the power play. They're not doing enough at five on five. There were numerous occasions, and I don't want to highlight individual players because I think, you know, the entire group is to blame right now. But Patterson, Lindholm, um, Miller at times being beaten to lose pucks, you know, making poor decisions with the puck. Quinn Hughes, I thought, wasn't yep. very good on Thursday against Seattle, which is not something we've said very often this year. And, you know, as much as we've liked the Canucks depth and we've liked some of the performances down the lineup from guys having career years, make no mistake about it, the Canucks will go as far as their top players take them and right now, the way they're playing is not a recipe for success. No, it isn't. And it's a, a rare situation where all the players had an off night against Seattle. And you, you mentioned Quinn Hughes. I thought there were a number of passes where just in the skates of his teammates, right? You're not making those tape-to-tape passes. But he wasn't the only one. Philip Ronick, uh, despite being elevated to power play one, did not have that much success there either. Whether it was five on five, there was one shift. He was out there for uh, almost two minutes and 30 seconds, had two chances to clear, and is unable to do so. Uh, just bobbling the puck. So it was a rough night for everybody, uh, but especially those defensemen. You mentioned the power play. It's not necessarily that you're able to not able to score, but four shots on goal on four power plays with those weapons. The shot attempts are simply not there. So when there's chances and you're being denied by a good goaltender or you you know tip your cap to the goaltender and say, hey, you made the save, they're not getting those opportunities. So... They're essentially being pushed to the outside, and teams are challenging them to say, show us what you got. Execute from the outside. And in the last game with Philip Hronik, it was a situation where you wanted to see if he could actually force you know, shots coming through and open it up for his teammates a little bit. Maybe there's a situation where you, you get a screen, you get a deflection. That's, none of that happened. So those shot attempts not coming through is a problem because zone entries are not clean, and on top of that, they're not finding the shooting lanes, which is one of the biggest, I would say, issues with that power play. And 15 shots on goal, even strength against Seattle, that's also a bit of a problem. We haven't seen their 5-on-5 game drop-off. Against Seattle, that dropped off as well. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. And it applies to uh, the Canucks right now, certainly. And, you know, we got a lot of questions about the power play and we're going to talk about it here in the first segment because there's like 10 of you that wrote us in and asked us to talk about it. So we'll get to some other listener questions later on in the show, but there's all this conversation about who should be in what spot and and how should they tweak the personnel. And look, Rick Tockett made a bold move against the Kraken. He took his top goal scorer, Brock Besser, off the top power play unit, and that says a lot about him trying to get something going here. To me, what this comes down to more than anything else is confidence or lack thereof. And I don't know how you generate or manufacture or regain confidence when you're going through a stretch like this. But what you do have to do, you're right, is get back to the things that made you successful. And 
you know, I, I joke about the the office Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott quote, but it's absolutely true that you're not going to score if you just pass the puck around the zone. And it feels like these players are too often trying to create the perfect play, the perfect setup, when in fact you score a lot of power play goals in the NHL by getting pucks to the net, generating chaos, getting rebounds, creating opportunities. And there hasn't been a whole lot of that of late. It's been tentative. It's been lacking in confidence. You know, they'll gain the offensive zone, but they won't do it well or with speed. They'll turn the puck over. There's an easy clearance. Uh, They mismanage the puck. They try to force passes into places where passes are not available for them. And, you know, it's going so badly right now. And look, the Canucks have always had a streaky power play, even when their power play has been one of the top power plays in the league. So I don't doubt they will find it again. And in many ways, it's good that they're going through this struggle now rather than in April or May when the games have so much more importance and consequence. And you do have confidence that with the skill they've got, they'll figure it out and they'll be better for it. But in the short term, looking at the the question of how do you get out of it, I don't really know. Like, do you need bounces to go your way? Do you need some pucks off butts and into nets? Like, like the Sam Lafferty goal yep. uh, on Thursday against Seattle, albeit an even strength goal. That's just a bounce that you get off a guy going to the net because he's in the right place at the right time and you get a goal. It kind of feels like the Canucks need a couple of lucky power play goals like that to get themselves back on their feet. Well, I'm glad you brought up that goal because what's happening on that play, Sam Lafferty's driving the middle of the ice. He's actually finding an opportunity to get to the net. And on the power play, that's not happening where you know the shots are one thing, but you're not able to to really penetrate the middle of the ice. The other thing is, you can see the players think right now. They're slowing the game down to such a point where they're delaying, and when everything is in front of the PK, that's easy for them. You, you keep your, you know, your situation, your positioning, uh, you're protecting the back door, you're essentially saying, go to the point, go to the half wall, we're not giving up anything else, because the Canucks are slowing it down to a certain point where it's easy for the PK. And what happens when you slow it down? Everything's in front of you. you got no options, and you for- try to force it in. You try to force that pass in, and there's an opportunity in the game as well against Seattle where Connor Garland's in transition, slams the brakes, and waits for the perfect pass. By then, Jared McCann's on it, deflects it. It's a transition chance the other way. So it's not only being seen on the power play batch, but we also saw a little bit of that five-on-five where you're trying to find that perfect path. By the time it comes or you think it's there, it's gone. It's evaporated because the opposition reads what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of concluding our conversation on the power play because I think it, you know, we'll go in circles with it because it's going poorly. There's only so many things they can do to get it going, and we'll see what Rick Tockett draws up in terms of what they try to do uh, ahead of the game Saturday against the Bruins. But the other thing I think they're facing right now is that because they were so good on the power play early in the year, they are more well-scouted by opposing penalty kills, and they're having to try and battle through that. And perfect example uh, that comes to mind was in the Colorado game, Uh, Quinn Hughes gets a good zone entry, skates it himself. He's getting frustrated because they're not gaining the zone. I think half the power play was gone at that point. So he gains the offensive blue line, defers to JT Miller at the right point. And what have we seen Miller do in that situation countless times this year? And to his credit, successfully fire a rink-wide pass to the far point to relieve pressure and create, you know, an odd man situation on the other side of the ice. But what happened? Two Colorado players jumped into that passing lane, 
Miller tried the pass anyway. It was broken up and cleared, and and there went a good zone entry by the wayside for the Canucks. So that's just one example of many where you can say opposing penalty kills know what the Canucks are trying to do now, and they are taking those things away. And this is where you have to be adaptable. And, you know, we were laughing and joking about it when I brought it up on the pregame show the other day, but... A good power play is like improv comedy. You have to read and react and see what the other person's doing and jump to open areas on the ice and have sort of that feel for creating opportunities, especially when any set plays or things that have worked for you in the past aren't working. And right now they don't feel like a good improv group. They feel like a bunch of actors reading off a script, sitting at a table, not adding any flair to their performance. They're trying to do the same things that have been working for them all year, and guess what? They're not working anymore. Yeah, it's not instinctual. It's formulaic. And, you know, when that happens, it's easy for teams to read. Uh, One of the better power plays, and the one that I use as kind of the prototype going back a few years, and I know Edmonton's great, but the one I love watching over the years is Tampa Bay. So many weapons, but it's never... You don't know where the puck's going to go. You have two dual threats on each side. You've got one you know, at the point. You've got Braden Point in the middle. And Vancouver's got some serious weapons as well. Maybe you don't have the heavy shot of one you know, Victor Hedman, but you've got a player in Quinn Hughes that can attack the middle. Well, you do if you're keeping Heronic there. For sure. If you've got Heronic there, you've got that threat. But the way that they're not working off of instinct right now, and it just seems like they're waiting for that perfect shot, uh, Tampa doesn't do that. Tampa essentially says, pick your poison because each one of us are willing to pull the trigger. Vancouver's not working that way right now. And what this comes down to, not just on the power play, but at even strength, moving your feet. Yep. And this is where we can transition into talking about some of the penalties they've been taking. And Rick Tockett uh, earlier in the week essentially said, stupid stick penalties, we can't take them. We're reaching in. You know, I want guys to play physical, play with edge, but these are lazy penalties is what he called them. And they continued on Thursday against Seattle. We talked about the Lindholm high-sticking penalty in the first period. Niels Hoaglander called for a hook. Uh, Teddy Bluger, not a stick penalty, but a needless interference called the neutral Stop zone. Stop skating on that play. Yeah, and, and so again, that's what I'm coming back to is those are the kind of penalties you take when you're reaching in and not moving your feet. And moving your feet applies to the power play, being more fluid, creating different looks by skating around and not just standing static and passing the puck around, but it applies at five on five too in terms of getting to loose pucks first, winning some of those battles, not putting yourself in a bad situation where you need to take a penalty and put your team down a man. And to the Canucks' credit, with the exception of the Minnesota game, their penalty kill's been doing a pretty good job of meaning that those sorts of penalties don't hurt them. But all of that said, that's what we're seeing from this team right now. And again, we talked about it, the busy schedule. Maybe they're just tired, and and that's why that's happening. But as you pointed out, rightfully so, you need to learn how to play tired because if you're going to go on a deep playoff run, you might play multiple seven-game series. You're going to get to the third or the fourth round, hopefully, if you're in that Canuck dressing room. You're going to be tired. You're going to be banged up. And... Nobody gives you a mulligan for being tired or banged up when you're late in the Stanley Cup playoffs. you got to find a way to win regardless. And that's what this team needs to figure out is how can they still continue to get results, which to their credit, they have done most of this year when they're tired or when things are going against them. Uh, But right now they don't have that. And it's, you know, a big reason, again, why they're struggling is not moving their feet, being outworked by other teams, taking needless penalties. And two of the games that on, on this road trip that I look at very closely is Minnesota and the one against Seattle because 
you have two very desperate teams that are going to work hard. Does it remind you of somebody? Maybe the Vancouver Canucks of last year that were, you know, trying to get into the playoffs, had a bad start to the season, and you're desperate. The desperation level was there for Minnesota. It was there for Seattle. You're playing playoff games already in February. And it's not a great spot to be in if you're that team, but if you're playing against them, you have to acknowledge that, hey, you've built that cushion, but at the same time, there's going to be a lot of teams that are rolling through Vancouver, whether it's the Penguins, whether it's the Kings right now who are actually in a playoff battle, whether they're going to make it. Um, Some teams on the upper side of things too. There's a stretch where the Canucks have the Kings, the Golden Knights, the Jets, the Avalanche, and that's a stretch of four or five games where you're saying, all right, they're gonna, they're not going to take us lightly. So when I look at you know the Vancouver Canucks over the little bit here, you got to play desperate. And you're not going to necessarily match the Minnesota of the world in terms of their mentality because they feel like every game is game seven batch. Uh, but you still have to bring you know, the, the battle level and the work rate because teams right now at this point of the year start to get desperate and they're going to bring it every single game. And one thing I will say that I think needs to be said here to calm people down, because, you know, as much as they've lost four games in a row, this has still been a very good season. And even if they're going through a tough stretch right now, it's still going to be considered a very good season for this team. They're not the only top team that's been struggling lately. The Jets went through a losing run. The Bruins haven't been as good as they were earlier in the season. Vegas is sputtering a little bit right now albeit due to some injuries for them I I do wonder if this time of the year is harder for teams that are top teams because you've accomplished so much you got that all-star break most of your guys got to go away to sunny destinations and relax and reset in the Canucks case they had more players at the all-star game than anywhere else six of them uh, ended up attending Uh, and then you come out of that with arguably your toughest stretch of the season in the schedule, they were bound to have some struggles through this stretch of the season. Now, it doesn't make it any easier to swallow when the process isn't there. And that's kind of what I looked at, especially coming off the Minnesota game. I was on with Halford and Bruff in the morning earlier in the week, and I talked about doesn't matter if you beat Colorado, get back to the process, get back to your staples, get back to how well you've been playing. And look, second half of a back-to-back at elevation on the road, you're probably losing that game either way. But if you play well and you trend in the right direction, then that's a positive you can take. And I thought, at least at five on five, that happened in that game against Colorado. The game against Seattle felt like a step back to me, and it'll be interesting to see how they respond with Boston on Saturday. That's going to be a huge challenge as Boston is the best team in the NHL as of right now and with the Canucks dropping another game it's not gonna put too much pressure on Boston on that front but you know this is a an interesting time because you'd want to face adversity you don't want to be in a situation where you're you know kind of run over the NHL and the first adversity you face is in the first round of the playoffs Boston that was them last year against Florida and what happened many years ago a few years back now Tampa Bay versus Columbus uh, same idea there you first adversity you face is in in the first round of playoffs and you end up getting swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets so it's good to face adversity but you have to be able to respond and one thing I will say about the way that they've played games they've scored the first goal in 39 games this year and recently they've been scoring the first goal as well that idea of running out of gas I think it's a real real excuse don't get me wrong It, it is something that based on the trend of this team they start off a game they'll get the first goal but it does feel like the fatigue is setting in. 
But that's where, that's where defensive hockey and playing the right way is supposed to protect you. Haven't necessarily seen that. And we could use all the talk at cliches, you know, playing to your staples, protecting the guts of the ice, meeting pressure with pressure. That's something this team isn't doing right now. And again, we didn't expect them to do it for 82 games, but it will be interesting to see how soon they can get themselves out of this losing run and back to the kind of hockey that they've been playing for most of this year. You are listening to In the Booth here on Sportsnet 650 with Brendan Batchelor and Randeep Janda. On the other side, we'll get into the mailbag. we got a ton of questions from you guys that you want us to answer, so we'll discuss a number of Canuck topics, and we'll do the rose ceremony before we get out of here as well. It's all still to come right here on In the Booth on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with Brendan Batchelor and Randy Janda. Thanks for joining us yet again this week. If you're listening on the radio and you missed any part of the show, it does live as a podcast as well. You can find it on the Canucks Central podcast feed. And you want to subscribe to that because you get our show every week in the booth. You get every post-game show with Sat and Bick, and you get Sat and Reach and Canuck Central every weekday as well. You also get emergency podcasts with breaking news for the Vancouver Canucks, and it'll be interesting to see if we're doing any of those in the coming weeks as we get closer and closer to the NHL trade deadline. All right, Randy, we got a lot of questions into the mailbag as we called out for them on Twitter this week, and I want to start with one, a bit of a different one, and you'll see why, from at jcog88 on Twitter. He asks, why do I cheer for this team? And then says afterwards, this is a non-negative question. So there's been so much negativity and disappointment around this team for the struggles they've gone on in the short term that I think it's a good opportunity, and jcog gives us this opportunity to remind everyone why you cheer for the Canucks and why things have gone so well this year. Because regardless of the fact they're going through a tough stretch right now, they're one of the top teams in the NHL, legitimately, when no one expected they would be. They're going to make the playoffs, and we're going to have real playoff games in Vancouver for the first time in nine years. This is a team that has the potential to go on a long run. They're a team that's bought at the deadline this year. These are all things to be excited about. And yes, it's disappointing and frustrating in a small sample size to see a team that has played so well this year struggle. And, you know, I can understand fans who have seen this team struggle a lot over the last decade thinking, oh no, here we go again. And is this where things fall apart after such a great year? This team's too good to let that happen. And so as much as if you get focused in the, the short-term results, it can be frustrating and disappointing. Just remember, this is a team that has put together a good year, and they're going to play some exciting hockey in the spring for the first time in a while. Yeah, and you know how I love my boxing analogies, right? Hockey games and the season is kind of like a boxing match. It's not like you're just standing there and the opponent's not punching you. There are going to be punches that land, and at some point, you're going to face some adversity. You're going to have to make sure that you... You know, adjust to your opponent and you adjust and tweak your game. And Batch, that's what's going on right now with fandom. It's like riding a roller coaster. And I'll be honest, through most of the season, it was a pretty uneventful roller coaster. It was flat. Now you got to drop here. Your heart rate is going up a little bit as a fan. And that's normal because no team over 82 games is going to dominate the league. It very rarely happens. Sure, Boston did it last year. Where'd that get them? Where did Tampa go when they dominated the league? You need to face some adversity. And why are you a a Canucks fan? Why are you a hockey fan? 
because you ride the roller coaster. That's what makes it sweet. If you end up having success, it's because you've also paid your dues. So stick with it. This is still a good team. Uh, we see that where they are at the top of the Western Conference, but there's always going to be lulls and slumps. That happens even for the best teams that have you know conquered the mountain and, and reached the top of the mountain in any league, whether it's hockey or another sport. You're going to have to ride the roller coaster every now and then. Here's another question from Kevin who writes in and says, last year in the playoffs, Bieksa noted how a late-season trade broke the chemistry in the room heading into the 2013 playoffs. Could that be the case this year, or is it a matter of being fatigued? They all just look way less dynamic now than when they had Kuzi. And it's an interesting question. I I don't think the subtraction of Kuzmenko has affected thing things chemistry-wise, because let's be honest, he was being moved down the lineup out of the lineup, that's not a factor. I also think that the reason they went out and got Elias Lindholm as early as they did, and let's remember they brought him in on January 31st during the All-Star break, is to have some of these growing pains with chemistry. You know, if they had waited till the deadline to get him and then we're going through a stretch like this, then I would have more concern because your runway to the playoffs to figure things out is a lot shorter. They've got time. I'm sure they'll figure it out. Their top players in particular are too skilled not to. Their power play has been too good this year to not have success. But it is an interesting question from Kevin in terms of a trade like that affecting the chemistry in the room and whether that's something that could impact them down the stretch. I'm not sitting here saying it couldn't impact them, but I'm saying I would need a larger sample size than losing four games before I could buy into that. Yeah, and there has been production there from Elias Lindholm as well. It's not like he's got zeros across the board. This is a guy you know, that has been able to put up points. He's has been able to put up goals. Is the chemistry there right now? Uh, not quite. You know, There's been spells in a game against Seattle. Uh, there was a third period where that line kind of upped their play, weren't able to get a return on it. But I still need that you know, longer runway. I need a little bit of larger sample size to see where his best fit is. And Elias Lindholm is an all-star level player. This is a guy that is versatile. That's one of his strengths. You give him time, you give him, you know, run with a a line, he will figure it out. And if not, guess what? You got another line with JT Miller, potentially you can give it a go as well. Or you got potential to load up the, the lotto line. That's what Lindholm is able to do for you, where you're able to try a few different things. But you don't want to try too many things too early, right? Where you want to give a player a chance to generate potentially with Pedersen. So can it throw off a locker room a little bit? Perhaps. But remember, it's not like Andre Kuzmenko was having a lot of success when he got traded. This was a player that was struggling. This was a player that was moving down the lineup. Uh, there was very minimal ice time that he was getting. So uh, I think maybe if you want to say the vibes were good, but the on-ice production was not quite there, give Lindholm some time and whether it's with Hoaglander and Pedersen or another line, I think good players find a way to figure things out, especially versatile ones like him. And with Kuzmenko, we do have to note that he's being dropped down the lineup in Calgary right now too. So it's kind of the same story happening again, one province over. One thing I do want to address in this conversation though is I don't think it's a chemistry issue in terms of guys they've brought in, but I am here for the argument that they're missing the guys that are out of the lineup right now. And we did get another question in. I don't have it up right now, so apologies to whoever sent it in, saying the only question they really wanted to ask is, when is Joshua back? 
that to me, if you said to me, what's more likely to be having an impact right now, Lindholm's arrival messing with the chemistry or Joshua being hurt affecting the way they drove play down the lineup, I'm way more willing to buy into they miss Joshua quite a lot right now. Yeah, as the F1 on that third line and the way he's able to really, you know, smash and grab the puck essentially where he's in a position to be bring that pressure, work so well with Connor Garland and Teddy Bluger, one area that they've really missed is that forecheck where they're winning possession in the offensive zone. And batch on top of that, we've seen some swings from the Canucks where they allow a goal and immediately they'll allow another one. One of the strengths of the third line is that they've been used as a response line where the Canucks allow a goal and Dakota Joshua, Teddy Bluger, Connor Garland are the first line right over the, the, the bench and the boards and they swing momentum the other way. That hasn't happened since Dakota Joshua got injured and the top six hasn't able, been able to bring that either. Uh, JT Miller's line has brought that maybe at certain moments, but it hasn't been consistent. So when it comes to Dakota Joshua, yeah, he is being missed, but here's the thing you're going to have injuries later on. You're going to have potentially guys playing hurt. Maybe they're at 60 or 70%. You have to have the next man up policy on any playoff team. So once again, this is a learning moment for this team to say, all right, when are your key guys on the third line's not there? Who's going to step up? Who's going to be able to, to jump in? And, you know, you start looking at players that you'd expect to take that spot. Ilya Mikheyev played seven minutes and seven seconds against the Seattle Kraken. This is a, a moment for certain players in the lineup to step up. And without Dakota Joshua, it's hurting the team, no doubt. But you expect players to show their worth. And that's something that's not quite happening right now in the third line, fourth line as well. And the fact that it's been a rotating cast of characters in the bottom six kind of shows that Tockett's not happy with what he's getting from that line right now. Like Archdeep Baines played there and actually played well enough Got that promoted. they elevated him yeah. up the lineup. Um, you know, we've seen Mikheyev there. We saw Suter there against Seattle. Um, so they're fi looking to find that thing that they are missing right now with Joshua out of the lineup. And this ties into the conversation we had last week about uh, we would learn how important Joshua is to this team based on how things went with him out of the lineup. And I talked about, you know, I, I want to prioritize signing Bluger if it's a choice between the two of them in the offseason because you want to solidify the center ice position. And I still believe that. But all of that said, it is very clear that Dakota Joshua is very important to this team. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if the way they've struggled through this stretch makes management think twice about whether they need to bring Dakota Joshua back. He is their most consistent forechecker. And that's one of the areas that, you know, the Canucks, whether it's in the top six or in the middle six, they don't get enough of that. that you mentioned Arshadi Benz playing on one of the top lines. Part of the reason is they're looking for a four-checker. Phil Giuseppe has not been able to bring that consistently. Pew Suter does that to a certain degree, but you also need Suter in other parts of the lineup. And Ilya Mikheyev uh, hasn't brought that at all, really, this season. So, you know, when Dakota's not there, there's a huge, huge missing spot in that lineup. And, you know, when you talk about contracts, here's the thing. There's a lot of teams across the league looking at this guy saying he can skate, he's responsible defensively, he's a good penalty killer, he's a playmaker, he's setting a career high, and yes, he's a bit of a wrecking ball on, on the forecheck. When you're a UFA, all it's open market, right? So I'm with you. I think his importance has gone up, but there's always a price point. And whenever you start hitting the free market, it's silly season for a reason. Yeah. So especially with big forwards that can bring that physical – 
element, right? Go back to whether it was David Clarkson. Go back to whether it was, you know, even uh, players that haven't been able to hit free agency. Tom Wilson's a classic example where Washington has one guy and they're never going to let him go because he's kind of the prototype that everybody's looking for. Dakota Joshua is kind of one of those guys too, plays a solid five-on-five game, but also kills penalty and is a certain size profile. And, you know, I think I said this last week too, but you have to be careful because, yes, he's been great this year and it looks like he's very important to the team. And, you know, being perfectly honest, I would like them to re-sign him. I think he's a player that brings a lot to them. But you also have to be wary signing bottom six wingers in particular coming off career years. So we'll see how that carries forward into the offseason. Suri Canucks on Twitter writes in and asks, is not having the surgery earlier last year affecting Ilya Mikheyev? And... I mean, the the blunt answer to this question is, I don't know. I haven't talked to Ilya Mikheyev about how his knee's feeling, whether he thinks it's impacting him or not. Maybe that's a conversation um, that, that is worth having with him at some point here over the next few weeks. But what I will say is I think people underestimate how severe this injury is and how long the full recovery takes for some guys. This guy tore his ACL and had surgery on it, what, like 13 months ago now? There are some guys that talk about not feeling back to 100% for a year and a half, two years after they have a procedure like this. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and defend Mikheyev and say he's been good or anything like that lately because I certainly think he hasn't. But this is a guy still on pace for a career year offensively. And I think part of the frustration with Mikheyev Again, as is often the case with people that end up being scapegoated or targeted by the fan base in Vancouver, is it comes back to the contract. This guy was paid to be a top six forward uh, or a middle six forward at the very least, making just shy of $5 million. And we saw Connor Garland get some of this vitriol when he was struggling, saying he's not playing to the level of the contract. To me, that's much more where the conversation around Mikheyev should be right now, rather than to say, you know, he's not playing very well because I think if you say in your mind that Ilya Mikheyev is a bottom six winger or a fourth liner in particular, then you're grading on a different curve than looking at a guy that's making nearly five million bucks a season. Yeah, I think the injury is pretty prominent. To your point about, you know, the question specifically, we can't speak to that. Both the agent and Mikheyev said, hey, it was the player's decision after talking to the Canucks and he wanted to keep playing. So, you know, if the player in question and his representation are okay with that, that's what you do. But there's one thing for sure with Ilya Mikheyev. He doesn't have that burst right now. And when he's been playing his best, and I go back to his time in Toronto, this guy was all over the ice. He was a disruptive element. And you talk to any player across the league, when he was doing his thing, he was a very challenging player to play against because his speed was very uncomfortable for any defenseman and forwards to deal with because he was everywhere. It felt like within a second, he'd close on you and create an opportunity and it'd be going the other way. Whether he'd score or not is a different story, but he'd create chances. We haven't seen that. And I I really think the knee injury and the surgery have a huge role to play on that. When Ilya McCabe is playing his best hockey, you notice him for all the good reasons. He is a player that's on top of pucks. He's being aggressive. He's hounding. And that simply hasn't been the case. So when you look at Seattle's, the game against Seattle in seven minutes and seven seconds of ice time, uh, that's a player that you didn't really notice even in those seven minutes. Uh, the last few games you haven't really noticed as well. And that speaks to me 
in terms of I just, I'm just not seeing that speed in his game right now, which is so central to the identity of the player. Another player down the lineup, uh, the focus of a question here from The Shadows on Twitter who writes in and asks, why is Niels Oman in the lineup every night? And a uh, couple of short answers to this one before we get into this discussion. One, he hasn't been in the lineup every night. He has been a healthy scratch four times this year. He was sent down at the start of the season, so he didn't break camp with the Canucks, even though I think Rick Tockett would have liked him to. Um, also, if you look at the short term here, for the game Thursday against Seattle, they only had 12 healthy forwards on their roster, so Oman had to go into the lineup. Joshua's hurt. Uh, Di Giuseppe was away dealing to a personal matter. The only two healthy scratches were Jet Wu and Mark Friedman. So that answers directly your question about why he's been in the lineup consistently of late. But I think sort of the underlying message that the Shadows is getting at here is what are you getting from Niels Oman? Uh, what about his level of play? I think similar to McCav, he can come in for some warranted criticism for uh, the way he's played of late. And Talkett is even sort of addressed in the last couple of days talking about how they're not getting much from that fourth line right now and they need to get more from it. And we've seen some of the decreased minutes for those guys as a perfect example of how Talkett doesn't trust them very much right now. Well, you mentioned PDG and Joshua, but also Niels Oman, you know, he can play the center position. And Sam Lafferty, as much as he's done it in the past, this coach seems like he prefers Lafferty on the wing rather than down the middle. And Niels Oman, to his credit, better at faceoffs than he was last year. He was in his in the 30%, 33%, 34% last year. He's up and around 50% now, so he's improved. And on top of that, if you move Pew Suter down to the fourth line, you're looking for another winger. Right now, Suter's needed on the wing. That's why you need Oman to play in the fourth line center position because uh, you need Suter to play elsewhere. So this is by necessity as well. You mentioned the injuries, but I also think it comes down to you want Suter and Lafferty when they're in the lineup, uh, especially for Lafferty since he's been scratched a few times, to play on the wing to bring that speed uh, and you'd rather have Oman play down the middle on the fourth line. Yeah, and you know, missing Joshua right now is a factor in, in terms of that conversation too, but it does make me wonder, as we're now about two weeks out from the trade deadline, and you know, we didn't necessarily get a question directly to this topic, but I think it's interesting to discuss it now. What does the priority need to be for this management group? I would have said, and in fact, I did say on these airwaves a few weeks ago that I thought it was defensive depth, that I thought you needed some more guys to bring in on the blue line in the event you have injuries to some of your top guys so that you've got that added depth. And I still believe that you can never have enough defensemen. Uh, But would adding another forward to this mix be something that makes a difference? Um, we know that Phil Kessel is likely to be added to that mix. We got another question as well from someone saying, what are we hearing on Phil Kessel? Basically the same thing that uh, has been out there, which is that uh, assuming he meets the benchmarks they've set for him, the expectation is that they will sign him before the trade deadline. Um, so, So maybe that's where we should take this conversation is, if Phil Kessel can get to the level they want him to, what sort of a difference could he make if he gets to come into the lineup at the expense of a couple of these guys that are struggling, like Mikheyev and Oman? And if Kessel can't give you what you'd like on the fourth line, what sort of player do they need to target? Yeah, I think I'm with you on the defensive side of things. I think specifically right side of defense where you can add an upgrade on Mark Friedman for sure, 
but is that potentially some competition for Noah Juleson as well, where you're trying to raise that bar on the right-hand side? The other thing I would say is, from a forward perspective, yeah, you're looking at some of the players that are playing in the bottom six right now to say, you're not looking maybe for a top six player. You don't have those assets right now. You don't have the cap room. Not unless you're going to move some money out. And and people would say, and I can hear people yelling at their radios or their podcast machines or whatever right now, saying, well, trade Mikheyev, then free up some cap space, and then you can go and find a forward using that four-plus million dollars that would be more suited to your top six. And maybe they'd be able to do that. I think there could be a market for Ilya Mikheyev out there around the league, so it wouldn't surprise me if it's something they're exploring. But we have to work within the confines of what, they have right now and what they have right now is not enough cap space to add a top six forward anyway that's right and Mikheyev also in the last two weeks his game has taken a hit so you're right there's probably an appetite to to take him on your team and you know buy load so to speak but when you play 707 uh, the rest of the teams across the league notice that as well so that might have to adjust the offer a little bit but Phil Kessel might address that batch, but I do think that fourth line needs a little bit extra something. And maybe it's consistent forecheck, maybe it's a little bit of something. A player that can play in your bottom six, and you're looking at adding a little bit of, you know, at this time of the year, a player that can play center and wing, ideally. But those aren't easy to come by, and there's a lot of teams that are still in the playoff race. So that need might be something that you probably play closer to the trade deadline. I know Rutherford and Alvin like to operate earlier, but for some needs, you might have to wait it out. Uh, I think we got time for one more question here. Let's go to Robbie on Twitter, uh, who asks, why doesn't Tockett go to the lotto line when they need a goal? And this is something I've noticed in recent games too, and I do wonder about the reasoning behind it. And the only thing that I can think of is what it makes the second line look like if you throw those guys together, because then you're looking like, for example, based on the way the top six was constructed tonight, you would have a second line of Baines, Lindholm and Hoaglander. Now I actually, as I sort of go through this process in my head, trying to figure this out, I actually kind of think that a Baines, Lindholm, Hoaglander line might give you a lot of energy and might actually be a good decision. Um, but that said, I, I do find it curious he hasn't been willing to go to the lotto line, especially, and I know they went through that really good stretch and then kind of faded and he pulled them apart after that and hasn't really put them back together. But I, I do wonder why he doesn't. And the only thing that I can think of is if your top players aren't playing well, is putting them all together when they're all struggling going to be the answer or is it just going to lead to more struggles? And and that might be his rationale, but it is interesting at the very least that he hasn't been willing to go to it. And that collection of players, haven't they've been playing on the power play and they haven't been able to generate, right? So for the most part, uh, that group of players, they've struggled. So I think at some point you have to consider it just based on the fact that you're going to need some games where maybe you've got a, a situation you're playing a team that I would look at that Pittsburgh matchup. Pittsburgh's not, you know, been very, very inconsistent this year. Is that where you load up in a game, especially if you're chasing the game? Boston, I don't like that matchup because you might load up and say, okay, head to head against the Marchand and Pasternak line. But here's the thing about Boston. They've got two, three lines, four lines that can hit you and they can slice you and dice you in the middle of the, the, the lineup as well. So you want some balance against them. I'm with you. I think with Lindholm and Bans and Hoaglander, there's something there. But against certain teams, you do you want to essentially expose two young players to, you know, throw them in the deep end, on both on the same line? I, I think that's a slippery slope, especially with some of the teams that are on the the schedule here: Boston, 
Vegas, L.A. Remember, L.A.'s got three centers deep that are, when they're functioning and playing at a high level, some of the best in the league. You just got to pick your right matchups. But the lotto line, when you're chasing a game, I think you have to consider it based on the fact that they haven't been able to get too much when they're trying to catch up. Thanks for your questions. We appreciate you sending them in every week. And apologies if we didn't get to yours. Try again next week, and hopefully we'll be able to fit your question in. Before we get out of here, Randeep, it's the Rose Ceremony. I've got a pretty good idea where I think you're going to go with yours. And mine is in the same ballpark, but a little bit different. I'm giving my Rose this week to the city of Surrey. And here's why. The Vancouver Canucks only had two Canadian players in their lineup on Thursday night. Those players were Noah Juleson and Archdeep Baines. Both of them born in Surrey. Uh, So the only two Canadian-born players that played for the Canucks on Thursday night out of Surrey. Now, that may say something about their roster construction, that they've got a lot of Americans, a lot of Swedes, a lot of international players. And look, they've had success with those guys in their lineup. But shouts to Surrey representing in the Canucks lineup here this week, especially with Baines being called up from AHL Abbotsford. Shouts to the Surrey boys, and I'm going to zero in on mine uh, specifically with uh, Archie Baines. You mentioned it. This is a kid that's played two games in the NHL, and his story's a great one, undrafted at the junior level, NHL level. But what I liked is when he played, he played a responsible game. He was dangerous in that Colorado game where he was playing playmaker, had a two-on-one, and against Seattle as well, defensively, sound. When he's on the ice, he's making the right plays. He's scanning the ice, um, bringing the forecheck, and he was one of the few bright spots, probably the only bright spot for the Canucks against Seattle. So, you know, making that debut, representing the community, being the fourth Punjabi player in NHL history, got to give the Rose Stars the pants. Absolutely. And we're just out of time on this week's show. So thanks for joining us as we are here every week. If you missed any part of the show, it lives as a podcast on the Canucks Central podcast feed. And speaking of Arshdeep Baines and his Punjabi heritage, Randeep's going to be on Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi on Saturday night. I'll have the call of the Canucks and the Bruins with Brett Festerling, and you'll be able to hear that at 4 o'clock right here on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.